0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is Zen Master Genpo Mersal, also known as Genpo Roshi. And I I thought I might just uh, start by reading a few quotes uh, from well-known people about um, Genpo's work that are on the homepage of his website and uh, then we'll let him speak for himself. here we go. So Ken Wilbur says, and probably most of you listening to this know who Ken Wilbur is, let me state this as strongly as I can. The Big Mind Process, founded by Zen Master Genpo Mersel, is arguably the most important and original discovery in the last two centuries of Buddhism. It is an astonishing, original, profound, and effective path for waking up or seeing one's true nature. Uh, and here's one by Zen Master Bernie Glassman. By integrating Western psychological insights with Eastern transcendent practice, big mind, big heart helps bring light to all our voices, those of depression, anger, and confusion, as well as those of unity and transcendence. The consciousness that emerges is integrated, free, and world-embracing. And one final quote from Jack Canfield, author of the Chicken Soup series, um, I want to really encourage you to get involved in the work of Zen Master Genpo Merzel." Every time I've worked with him, I've had major breakthroughs and major insights. His Big Mind process is tremendously valuable because it's so universal. It works whether someone has been working for 40 years or they're just starting out. So, um, I've listened to you do your Big Mind thing, and, and we'll be talking about that during this interview. Um, I've also listened to four or five hours of audio of you over the last week. I, I, I do that before I interview each guest. I listen to a lot of stuff. On uh, my iPod, usually while I'm brushing my teeth or washing the dishes. How's <laughs> you <know>. your head? <laughs> oh, it's fine. It's fine, and and I must say that I have really enjoyed um, your sense of humor, uh, your unpretentiousness, um, your kind of down-to-earth approach and and, and way of dealing with people. Um, it's very refreshing, and uh, you know, very what you see is what you get. You know, no not not any sort of putting on airs kind of thing and uh, so I feel like I've kind of gotten to know you, and it's been very enjoyable.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. You know, it took uh, a few years to climb the mountain. It's taken almost 40 years to descend it, and and, uh, yeah, to be just ordinary and normal.
0: Interesting point, yeah. Um, Interestingly, I've never practiced Zen, but uh, Zen actually had a, or Buddhism and Zen had sort of a Important role to play in a couple of critical junctures in my life. When I was 17, I was driving down the road through Westport, Connecticut, with three friends in the car, and uh, one of them in the back seat was reading from Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert's uh, version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and it suddenly dawned on me that there was such a thing as enlightenment, and that's what it was all about, you know. So that was one thing. And then a year later, after I'd been taking drugs for a year, uh, (laughs) I was I was sitting there one night reading Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, uh, that little book and it hit me like a ton of bricks I thought, wow, these guys are serious and I'm just screwing around and if I continue on like this I'm going to be miserable all my life so that's it. I'm going to stop taking drugs, learn to meditate and see where it takes me and that's what I did. What year was that? That was 1968.
1: Okay, because I thought it was probably around the same time uh, as me. My first uh, awakening experience was actually February of 1971. So, in a month, uh, it'll actually be 40 years, uh, like yourself, uh, which is like 43 years, yeah. Uh, also, I had done some drugs at that time, uh, but was actually sitting on a mountaintop uh, alone, and my friends had gone off hiking, and I was sitting there contemplating my life when I had this opening experience where... I dropped the self, or the self was dropped, and uh, body mind was dropped off, and I was one with the entire cosmos, the entire universe, and it uh, changed my life forever. Mm. Uh, I've never been quite the same. My mother said, "You went insane." I <laughs> argued, "I argued, no, I, I think I've gone sane." Yeah. but uh, that was probably debatable. And at this point, I, I think she was right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's it's funny. I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking, you know, uh, over the course of my whole spiritual career, there. If I look back on it, there are many times where I was out of my blooming mind, you know. I mean, just because you go through so much inner transformation, you know, and it and you sort of tend to disassociate from the so-called real world and, and get caught up in your own subjective world, and and sometimes you can really get quite uh, eccentric, you know. And, and as you said earlier, you know, it took 40 years to come down the mountain. I mean, it takes a while to integrate all this.
1: It certainly does and, uh, you know, uh, I think it's an amazing journey that we've had and I think we're all very lucky to live in the age that we do. Mm. I think it's, a, it's an amazing period of time right now where so much is accessible uh, and I really believe that uh, the whole evolution of consciousness that we're becoming more and more conscious as human beings and tapping into that, whatever we want to call, we call it one mind or cosmic consciousness or universal consciousness. And uh, there's just so many people around the globe doing that. And I think if we can reach a critical mass uh, of those of us who do want to help others awaken and others do awaken, we can actually reach the next level of consciousness, in, maybe in our lifetime even.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and you know, when you heat up water. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and nothing seems to be happening, but as soon as it reaches 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it starts to boil. And so we don't know what temperature we're at, you know? We might be at 200 right now, for for all we know, you know?
1: Or or 211. Yeah,
0: exactly. So let's just keep heating the water. That's right.
1: I kind of liken it to uh, when there's a truck that uh, the battery won't start, it's a big, heavy truck, Mm -hmm. and you've got a slight decline, but not much, and you get a bunch of people behind it, and you just push it. If you get enough backs into it, you can get that truck going uh, and I feel that it's going to happen i 'm almost hundred percent positive that it will happen, but if we all but we're going to all have to throw our backs into it and do our our share, you know whatever yeah. our share is to help awaken the planet
0: yeah, well, you've certainly been doing yours um, after you had that <clears throat> experience forty years ago um, i mean How long did it last, and and what did you do (laughs) do right
1: after that? Well, for one thing, I'm not down yet. (laughs) (laughs) Good, so it's still going on. (laughs) It's still going on, but uh, I would say that I was high for a good year. Uh I don't think my touched the ground Uh, until I got to the Zen Center in Los Angeles, which was a year and a month later. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got there in March of 1972, and that kind of brought me back to Earth going to the Zen area, and really studying with uh, you know a traditional Zen master. In fact, his teacher was my first teacher that I did retreats with, so Mazumi Roshi's teacher, whose name was Kodo Roshi. Mm-hmm. I did my retreats in March of 72, and then again in September, I think August and September of, of 72. And uh, then at that point, Roshi uh, became my teacher, Mazumi Roshi. And I studied with him until his death, which was 1995, mm. um, which was a long time yeah. uh, to be with a teacher and to go very deep. And we went through all the Koan studies by 1979, and he made me a, a Zen Sensei in 1980. That means and then a teacher? Asked, yeah, that means a teacher, exactly. Okay. And then I uh, was master in 1996, uh, mm-hmm. September of ninety six. Uh, I became a Zen master where the Glassman Roshi, uh, Mm -hmm. who was my older Dharma brother and also a teacher and mentor of mine, about five, six years older than me, Mm -hmm. and also my best friend, uh, made me a Zen master in 1996.
0: So it sounds like there's an official kind of system or hierarchy or something and you get approved to take on certain titles um, by senior or more advanced. People, is that the way that's that's exactly right? That's correct. Uh However,
1: it doesn't stop people from taking on titles, (laughs) right? (laughs) uh, There is a a kind of standard way or more traditional way, and it's called for particularly for uh, well, for both for the final, it's called the final seal of approval, that's called Inca, Mm -hmm. and that's as a send master, and then there's Shiho, that's the charm of transmission. Uh-huh. Translate as Dharma transmission. That's what I had in 1980, and that's what makes you a Zen teacher, a Sensei.
0: How do they determine uh, whether you're qualified? Is there some sort of test, or is there some sort of psychic cognition of what state you've attained, or how does it work exactly?
1: Well, it's more of a psychic cognition. It's it's a realization that you're there. I mean, I've made uh, eight uh, Zen masters and 15 Senseis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's really subjective, mm-hmm. but there is a a level where you just know that the person is a master now. Although, when you first become a master, like for me it was what, 16 years ago, almost 17, uh, is that right? 96 to 2001, yeah, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to say that for probably 12 of those years or 10 of those years at least, uh i was a very immature zen master in that i still had to ripen uh, i'm not saying that i'm all that ripe now uh <laughs> except in some other ways <laughs> uh but you know you have to grow into it also yeah like um, I, in the people i've made uh zen masters or roshis mm-hmm. uh the earliest one is now probably eight years mm. And she's starting to really ripen, and I can see it, becoming a, a true master. So it doesn't mean just because you're anointed <laughs> with the title of Zen Master that you're really a mature one in the beginning. I think that goes for everything. Yeah. When you first become a sensei, too, uh, you're going to be an immature one for quite some time. I mean, for me, it was 1980, and I don't feel I matured as a sensei until about 1995, 96.
0: Hmm. Huh. Well, uh, this is uh, so it's a little picayune, but w- what is the difference? Uh, sensei is a teacher, a master is a master. Uh, it's sort of like sounds like kind of like first class and Eagle Scout and Boy Scouts or something. I mean, is there uh, what uh, is uh, it? What distinguishes the two?
1: Yeah, I, I can try to explain that. It's not general. It's not always true. It's a kind of generalization I can say. Uh, but a teacher teaches, and a master empowers. Uh-huh. A master, and if I use a, a little analogy, when you climb to the top of the mountain, we call that the absolute or the transcendent, mm-hmm. and really to be a teacher, you should have at least done that much, right. you know, reach that absolute state of, I am Buddha, uh, mm-hmm. I am awake, I am the awakened one, mm-hmm. where you can actually really say that with some you know, sincerity, right. yeah, Confidence. Um, And at that point, uh, at the top of the mountain, you can encourage people to climb up, Mm -hmm. you can uh, coach them, Uh, you can uh, inspire them, Mm -hmm. Uh, you can yell down at them and say, you know, it's really great, this enlightenment, Uh, it's complete liberation, it's total freedom, you're free of fear, you're free of suffering, you know, work hard, practice hard, sit a lot, uh, and you too can reach this state. Uh, that's about what you can do as a teacher Mm -hmm. as a master you've fallen off the mountain or you've come down off the mountain it's usually more of a fall than a conscious choice to come down Mm -hmm. you come down off the mountain and you're back in what we call the muddy water or back in the grime or back in Mm -hmm. the, 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 the manure and from that place you can actually lift somebody up you can actually get under them Mm. you know, under their backsides right? <laughs> and just elevate them up. You can push them up. That's empowering a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a teacher, you're teaching, and in a way, and it's sad to say, you're kind of teaching down to, uh-huh. and there's that element. And when when you look back as a master, you think, oh my God, that was horrible. You know, I'm teaching down to, uh-huh. you know, trying to inspire people to come up to. Whereas a master, you're just in the same grind, the same, Grit, you know, the same stuff as everybody else. And uh, you don't feel superior. You feel like one with, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm just an ordinary being, an ordinary sentient being, just like everybody else. And yet I've been through this climbing the mountain and then descending the mountain. So I kind of know the territory, so I can guide, but I can also and still inspire, or still encourage. But there's more of an ability to actually empower.
0: Mm-hmm. And you don't mean to imply that this coming down from the mountain uh, involves a loss of, of the awakened state or the Buddha nature. I mean, somehow it, it sounds to me more like an integration.
1: Well, it feels a lot, lot like loss. Really? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> That's why very few people actually do it, because it really feels like you're giving something up. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, like my first enlightenment, as I mentioned, was 1971. Right. And then I had many, many, many experiences from 71 until now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in 86, I had the, what was at that point, the most profound enlightenment we call, I can show or great enlightenment. That was in March of 1986, uh, where at that point, there was just no more fear, no more suffering. There's so many of the human elements are just gone, mm-hmm. you know, I mean it's complete liberation, it's nirvana, it's, it's complete freedom. Yeah. Uh, to come down off the mountain really means to once again feel the suffering of all sentient beings, mm-hmm. to feel the fear and the anxiety of suffering sentient beings, to feel like everybody else, to have all the emotions everybody else has. Uh, mm-hmm. to get angry, to to uh, get enraged maybe, to get frightened, mm-hmm. uh, to be once again a mortal, not a Buddha, you know, a sentient being. We call it, in the vernacular, it's called a Bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. The Buddha is the one who ascends the mountain and the Bodhisattva gives up the enlightenment in order to liberate all sentient beings. That's what a Bodhisattva is, like Kansion or Kanyin or Avakititeshvara, they're really all the same. Just different uh, different languages and nationalities to refer to the same being that is here to really liberate all beings. But if you're up there on top of the mountain, you can't do much. There's no power to empower, Mm we say. You have to actually come down off the mountain. So you are giving up enlightenment in a way. You're giving up the kudos of enlightenment. I call it falling from grace. You're giving up that state of grace that maybe you were in for all those years, for me it was from 71 until 94 Mm -hmm. I was in that state, of course it was more profound by 86 it was deeper, but from 71 to 94 it was like, you know, you're just kind of uh, beyond uh, the suffering that we all encounter, and that's what inspires you to go on and go deeper and to help others because you find that freedom and liberation and peace, but eventually, and it's a hard one for people to, as I said, to voluntarily do is to come back down off the mountain to descend it and be an ordinary sentient being mm-hmm. and then for me from 94 until 99, which was again almost exactly five years um, I had, I still resisted being back in the mud you know, uh, I resisted being back in the samsaric world and. I was in some ways trying to recapture or reclaim the mountain, you know, get back up. And at that point, the mountain is just made of sheer ice. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you, can't, you can't get a foothold in it. No yeah. way. You know, before it was like, oh, this nice path, you know, that you're climbing, and it's a little difficult, a little rugged, you know, uh, maybe a little rocky, but it wasn't sheer ice. After you fall down, you look back and you go, oh my God, that's just sheer ice. And, uh, There's no way up that mountain again. Then, what you have to do is consciously make a choice. Consciously, I call it consciously choose to be a human being Mm -hmm. with all the pain and suffering that we as human beings feel. And with that, um, yeah, comes a humanness. Uh, Instead of being like above everybody or better than everybody or greater than or, you know, you know what kind of Buddha I'm talking about? <laughs> you, you, Buddha, you know, you're actually uh, really just a human being, an ordinary person. We say it like a lotus in muddy water.
0: Mm. There's an old Stephen Wright joke where he says he broke up with his girlfriend because he wasn't really into meditation and she really wasn't into being alive. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. <laughs> and it sounds to me like what you're saying. I mean. Uh, You know, you're you're saying, okay, you were a sensei and now you're a master. Uh, It sounds to me like you've come full circle in a way, like the tenth ox herding picture, and that you know you have brought something back from the mountain. It's not like you're back to where you were before you started climbing it. You've brought something back, and and the mountain phase, it sounds to me, if I if I'm interpreting this correctly, was one in which there was a uh, a lot of dispassion, aloofness, detachment. You know. the equanimity perhaps the disinterestedness and so on and uh, you know now you're kind of back into the nitty-gritty of being a human being as you say and uh, you know it's personally I don't think I don't I'm, I may be wrong I don't see it as so much as a fall or a descent as as more of an integration uh, or a, a kind of a maturation of of this you know it's a it's a, it's a state of progress it's not a it's not a, um, a loss would you would you
1: agree I would uh, <laughs> I have a few things to say uh-huh. um, in the tradition we call that stage which I call fall from grace advanced achievement, so it is an advancement yeah but it feels feels like right it does it feels yeah. like a fall yeah. I mean you you fall off the mountain you don't just climb down, nobody does that you know? right. okay i'm I've enjoyed this great view from the top of the mountain now for umpteen years and now I'm just going to start to walk back down the mountain no way you, you actually fall and uh, or, or descend quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know you talked about the tenth oxygen picture which is exactly right mm-hmm. uh, and nine of the pictures of course uh, are before the tenth right <laughs> and so the tenth is returning to the marketplace That's the real fault. Everything else, all those nine picks before the 10th are all forms of emptying yourself out, becoming more selfless, Mm -hmm. you know, discipline, taming the ox and and so forth, you know, going deeper and deeper and deeper into enlightenment. And the 10th is you're back in the marketplace with gift bestowing hands carrying a, a jug of wine in one hand and a pack of goodies, a bag of goodies in the other, but you're just an ordinary guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. In, in the marketplace world. And yeah. and for me, that means you brought back all your shadows. Hmm. In other words, when we become spiritual, what we seem to do is we disown everything that we consider not very spiritual. Right. You know? I'm sure you've been through that. Oh, yeah. And so you you dis you disown in a way. You you, you push away greed, you push away being um self centered, ego centered, selfish, unloving, uncaring, angry, and all of those become shadows.
0: I might and that- interject and say that it's not that you actually divest yourself of those things. You may still be very much you know, d- indulging That's in them. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, but you push away your sort of acknowledgement of them, you know? Exactly. That's what I was getting at. Yeah.
1: You, you disown them. Right. They become shadows and you don't really divest yourself of them. Uh, you're not really free of them. It's just you only can't see them. You're the yeah, other, one other people may
0: see them all too well, but but you're kind of uh, on your little mountain. And <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. That's, and, and other people do see them. They see you're just as competitive. You know, I was highly competitive. Athlete, you know, oh. uh, in uh, water polo and swimming, in, in my day, as competitive as you get, you know, I mean, we went undefeated uh, in a college. We were a two-year college, you know, junior college. We beat all the four-year schools that year. We beat all the two-year schools. We beat everybody. And we just wouldn't lose because we're highly competitive athletes, you know. Uh, I don't know if it's ever been done before or since in, in water polo, you know, in 1963. Yeah? Um, and um, when I became spiritual in '71, I just oh no, I'm not competitive anymore, right. you know. And so, but if you ask anybody that trained with me in the '70s and '80s, they'll say Gempo? not competitive. The better man I ever met. But I, I could sit so, here
0: on my mat longer than any of you guys. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Or I could do longer retreats than anybody. You know, we we were called the Olympians of Zen right. in the. Uh, late 80s and early 90s, we did three month sessions. Nobody's done that since the 1200s Uh and 1300s, you know. Three months of session. People do three months on go, but that's about half the amount of sitting as a session. Uh a session, Mm -hmm. you you sit 10, 12 hours a day. You're there uh, for 90 days. You know, we took the 30th and the 60th day. We took a little break to do our laundry and wash our robes, you know. So very competitive but just didn't see it. So back to the what you were saying, uh, the, the shadows then uh, keep us from really, really integrating, as you were saying, integrating the aspects that we disown. So a lot of my work now is all about helping, uh, and myself too, uh, reintegrate the parts of myself that I left behind and others, so, assumingly, you know, left behind or, or thought Far left behind, and then integrated. So for me, returning to the marketplace is really dealing with the shadows around the marketplace, being competitive, being prostituting ourselves, selling ourselves, you know, um, taking, taking responsibility for being greedy or being ambitious or being any of these things, but owning them. So they're no longer at work in an insidious way or in a covert way undermining this, that we can really come from what I call the apex of the triangle. So we have the spiritual on the right hand side of the transcendent and we have, let's say, the conventional or marketplace mind on the left side of the triangle and we're really coming from the apex where we've integrated both the marketplace mind and the awakened mind, or the spiritual mind uh to a point where i don't even consider myself spiritual anymore i wouldn't use that label just ordinary mm-hmm. but you said something else i wanted to come back to you and you were talking about the circle mm-hmm. and, and going full circle that's why we don't complete the circle in zen you'll notice that in zen that circle is never completed it's mm-hmm. always got that little bit of like space. on your shirt yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. i forgot it's there <laughs> yeah yeah um that That circle is that it's never complete Mm -hmm. and when we return, we return and yet we're not really back to the same place we were, it's an advancement, it's like a a spring or a spiral that advances and each time we feel we've come back to that let's say uh, primary point or primary place that we were, each time we've advanced that much, so it is an advancement and the tradition is called Tosan's five ranks Uh, the fourth rank is called the advanced achievement and the fifth rank is called integration or unity you say so you're right it is an integration or a unity but the fourth one does feel more like a fall than it does an advancement later when you learn to embody it, incorporate it, accept it, embrace it then you can see it's actually an advancement
0: Right. Boy, there's a lot of uh, teachers, well-known teachers who have come either from the East to the West or perhaps even started out in the West who could really have used something of the nature you're talking about because it almost seems like it 's the exception to find a teacher who hasn 't gotten involved in some sort of scandal or you know some sort of major blow up over their behavior even though they had well, apparently reached a very high state you know but the, the, a lot of the teachings that these people come from don 't really have something in them to uh, you know deal with the shadow and and work yeah. this stuff out
1: No, what you 're saying is very true, although i don 't know if you can avoid it I think to get to the fifth level you have to go through some kind of fall Hmm. Uh, I I don't think it's avoidable Uh, so I don't see that so much as in in a way a disgrace to the person I I, what I see is the importance is how do they work with that yeah do do they really begin to integrate that and own you know whatever it is and it's usually karma Hmm. that's brought them to that fall or do they go into denial about it, right? And then in, in that state of denial, they don't do any integration of that, and they can't move on really to the fifth level. Uh, so, you know, because most of the masters, with a few exceptions, came to the West, who were still fairly young. Mm-hmm. I mean, Suzuki Roshi was young, Ketagiri Roshi was young, Mazumi Roshi was young, Kolonchino Roshi was young, and then Suzaki Roshi was maybe a little older. When he came, but you know he's 103 now, wow. and I, I don't know if he's ever gone through that particular fall uh, since he's been here. Maybe he did it before. Who knows? You know he's he's pretty old. <laughs> um, there's um, others, you know, that Trumpa. You know they were all young mm-hmm. uh, when you think Trumpa died at 47, Katariri mm-hmm. and Maizumi Roshi both died at 64. Mm-hmm. You know Chino Kovan died also in the early 60s. Uh, that's pretty young. I mean, I'm 66 now, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been, you know, I've been around a while. But you know, if I had died at 62, 64, you know, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now. And yeah. I can imagine in 10, 20 years, if I'm still alive, I'm going to look back and say, what a young whooper snapper I was at 66! Yeah. <laughs> you know, how green and immature, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I'm not just talking about Zen teachers. I don't even know that many about many Zen teachers, but you know, just a lot of spiritual teachers have have run yeah. into this sort of situation. And it's in, it's interesting. I never thought of it the way you're saying that it's it's actually a state of progress for them in a way that they're being that they're stumbling like that and being forced to sort of. Deal with issues that they perhaps thought they hadn't possessed. Um, exactly. Well, yeah. you know,
1: I, I'm most familiar with Zen, of course, but Bhagwan, for example, who I really studied, I never met him. I which, actually, which
0: Bhagwan? Rajneesh, Rajneesh. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oshu. So, right.
1: You know, and I actually had an experience in 1980 in our uh, big session, we call it Rohatsu year in session so in December where I actually became one with him hmm. uh, but I predicted in 1978 my cousins were asking me or actually it's my aunt and uncle my aunt and uncle were asking me about him because you know he was news mm-hmm. and I said you know he's going to have a great fall yeah. which he did you know, yeah. it was predictable because he was ignoring the law of causation well that's what we all do mm-hmm. at level three which is the absolute again uh, we ignore cause and effect or a karma and we ignore it because at level three it doesn't exist. Yeah. There is and, no karma.
0: And there are a lot of teachers out there now, the sort of Neo-Advaita crowd, who actually say that very thing. They say, you know, karma, reincarnation, all these things, they're just sort of concepts, they don't exist, you don't exist, the world doesn't exist, and, and they kind of beat that drum over and over again. and That's stuck at level three. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's what it is. I was stuck at level three. Like I said, from 71 to 94, but particularly 86 to 90, 94, which is eight years, you know, eight years of being stuck where I said the same things, mm-hmm. you know, and you tend to ignore the karma that you're creating, which is a very dangerous place to be.
0: Yeah, and some of them are moving out of that. I'm glad to see, uh, you know, various people I've been interviewing um, You know, there was one guy who talked about taking a walk with his mother, and his mother said, "Oh, look at that beautiful tree." And he went into this whole cold rap about, "Oh, there is no tree, there is no person, there is no this," and and it was like, you know. uh, And then later on, he now he's looking back at that and saying, you know, geez, what a jerk I was. (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: Well, I'll tell you my
1: own experience with my mother in that same period from eighty-six to ninety-four. It was eighty-seven, and. I brought her to Holland where I was living at that point, or maybe it was 86, uh, later in that year. Uh, I brought her to Holland and we were walking all day way around uh, Amsterdam, around the canals, I and mean, we had a wonderful day at the time, and she was probably at that point in her late 70s. And we are coming back on the uh, metro and I was sitting across from her and I said, Mom, wasn't that a wonderful day? It's been just great, hasn't it? you know, all this walking and everything, and she said, oh yeah, it was really good. I said, you know, you live across the street from the beach, you know, she lived in Long Beach, just one block from the beach. I said, why don't you do that every day? Why don't you take a walk every day? It would be so good for you, you know, in that fresh air, and take a walk, you know. And she says, Dennis, when are you going to just accept me how I am? Good one. And it was great because it hit me. I mean, it was a dagger right into my heart. You know, yeah. because what did I want from my mother, which I never got? Just accept me how I am, mm-hmm. you know? And I couldn't even deliver. Right. I couldn't do it for mm-hmm. her. Here I would have been practicing 25 years and I couldn't do it for her. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Let's go back. Uh, let's go back
0: to the 70s again. So you you were sitting on this mountaintop and you had this profound experience. Did you have a clue what was going on at that point? Uh, <laughs> no. I, don't, I, don't I, I mean, did you realize this was a spiritual experience? I mean, because there's no. this one lady I interviewed that was just she's just he's a housewife in Arizona and her grandmother died and. And she started thinking a little bit about, you know, what happens when we die. And and next morning she woke up with this sort of energy in her head, and she ended up having this profound kundalini awakening just spontaneously, and didn't know what was going on. She thought she was going
1: crazy. Well, I told you, I thought I went insane.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, no, I
1: had no clue. Um, I started really reading a lot. I, I had not been. Uh, I had a master's degree and all that, but I was not an avid reader, I was not a seeker, I was nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started to read around Christian mysticism, Jewish mysticism. I started reading Jung, Carl Jung, and Freud, and and Maslow, and you know, Fritz Perls, I had read Fritz already, you know, I had done some Gestalt therapy from 68, this was 71. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really studied anything about religion or spirituality or mysticism. And so, as I read, I could say, I think I had some kind of mystical experience. That's about yeah. what say. Or some kind of opening. And you it was,
0: enjoyed it anyway. You thought, well, this is cool. I mean, well, it, was it wasn't... was more than that. It
1: changed my life. Yeah, yeah. It was like I had been a freight train going 180 miles... Let's say a bullet train in Japan, going 180 miles an hour in a particular direction. And the direction was... You know, Olympics, uh, trying out for the Olympics, you know, succeeding in athletics and sports, getting a master's degree, going to go out for a PhD, you know, wanted to, I wanted to be superintendent of schools of California, you know, Max Rafferty's job, you know, uh-huh. very, you know, very uh, ambitious, right? right. And uh, to be well known, to be successful, all that. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it all just was meaningless just meaningless. It was empty, completely empty. And the only thing that gave my life meaning from that moment on was continuing to clarify the mind, myself, and to help others awaken. And I began that day, I started turning everybody I met on. So I became, you know, the stink of Zen, right? Where I'm turning on my... I was teaching uh, EH children, emotionally disturbed or handicapped children who had educational problems. And uh, there were brilliant kids, some of them. They just couldn't sit still in the classroom or do anything. I'm teaching them to meditate, you know. We're spending like two hours a day meditating, you know. Principal's getting really upset, you know. We go outside we go to the park and we're being a tree, we're being a dog, we're being a bird, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even know anything about cons, but I had them be all these different animals and different plants and everything. Did it work? And it did. I mean, he yeah. left school. Cool. and they could sit still, and, and they did incredible work. But I didn't teach them a whole lot of the three R's. I mean, I just right. lost interest in that. I just wanted them to enjoy their life and wake up and be conscious human beings. Mm. And I taught my teacher's aid, and I taught the other teachers. I even tried to teach the principal in the school how to meditate, but he wouldn't go for it. You know. Did you ever have
0: any of those kids get back in touch with you years later and say, Hey, I'm so glad you did that, it really changed my life?
1: I did a couple of them, but, you know, I dropped out of of the whole site by, um, what year was it, 71? And this was around 68, 9. No, it was even, no, I dropped out, this was 71, I dropped out, yeah, I left in 71. I left six months after that, so I wasn't around too much, yeah.
0: I had a, a high school teacher that I really loved, and, and she really sort of got me, you know, and, and understood me, and and I, I really connected with her. And I found out years later she had become a professional psychic.
1: <laughs> I had a college at USC, graduate school, and she's probably still alive. Her name was uh, Grummet. Uh, anyways, she she was that for me. She yeah. really saw something in me. I was not a good college student. I was just an average. C plus college student, you know, graduate school, I did really well because she took me under her wing. She was the head of this. We were the first national teacher corps to go into Watts and into East LA Boyle Heights area and uh, teach, you know, right after the riots in 65, we went into 66 and uh, teaching fifth and sixth grade kids. uh, And she took me under her wings and I really blossomed uh, from having that kind of mentor. You yeah.
0: changed my life. So you had this profound experience, and you and you became an avid seeker, I guess, reading a lot of different books and checking into all kinds of things. Did you? Uh, how long did it take you to sort of settle into Zen? I mean, did you try a bunch of things? Yes, I did.
1: I, I would say from March until really maybe June. I well, had that's a, not long. <laughs> three months or something well, yeah that's all but it seemed like a long time yeah, yeah. i was i was playing around with i, I studied uh integral yoga you know mm-hmm. uh swami, swami satchitananda yeah yeah i studied with that and you know i did a number of things read a lot but i was on a mountaintop I, it was sometime in june i think it was towards the end of june uh, <laughs> up in glacier national park oh, and, i love that place oh my god it's so beautiful and my friends had just decided to go back to Long Beach, they'd come to visit me. And we had this van that I had actually sold my former girlfriend, I sold the van, uh, good price. And I took off with my backpack and I saw this sign that said, 50 miles to Waterton National Park. Mm-hmm. And I had no provisions, I was actually heading to the general store to get some food. I had a little bit of granola in a plastic bag and I had a little brown rice in a plastic bag and I had some dry milk in a plastic bag. And I had my little kit because I'd been on the road hitchhiking all over for a couple, well, a few weeks by then. So had a little grill, you know, and um, tennis shoes, no socks, right? And I see this sign, and instead of going like a, a sane person to the market first, I just said, screw it, I'm going, you know? And wow. I took off on this mountain, <laughs> had to cross a glacier, and it was really amazing.
0: Oh, so but, you weren't walking on the road, you were going on the trail to, to Waterton.
1: There was a trail to Waterton in backcountry wow. country over 50 Jeez. miles peaks. An yeah, with, so,
0: with 500 grizzly bears in the vicinity. Well, <laughs>
1: right? actually, somebody was killed the night before. Yeah. We got to one of the campgrounds. A grizzly killed a woman who was in her period. Uh, we were in that campground the very next day, and a yeah. grizzly the following day in another campground came through our camp. Wow. And by that time, there were three of us. I, I, I wanted to get to that part. But, so I had no food. So, you know, I I decided that I'd cook up the brown rice that first night. I cooked up a big pot, and then there were some other guys camping, and I went up and I offered them some brown rice. I said, i got a lot here, more than I can eat. Would you like some? They said, oh, yeah, sit down. We've got a lot of food. So we teamed up, and I had food. (laughs) It took took us five days to make the hike. Mm -hmm. And uh, one night where three of us were lying there in our sleeping bags and grizzly came, through our campus, or you know, ransacking it, and we just covered our heads up with a sleeping bag and just laid there. And he eventually walked away, but mm. that was pretty scary. Oh, I
0: you know. know, boy, your heart pounds, and <laughs> you think you're not, you think you're fearless, and then you know something, <laughs> something like. That. <laughs> Boy, yeah, when, when I was in Glacier somebody got attacked by a bear too and uh, I was sitting in my tent meditating. It was rainy and, and I heard this helicopter coming. I didn't know what was going on. It landed fairly nearby and it turns out you know, it was a medical helicopter pick, coming to pick this woman up who had been attacked and for days after that everybody was really spooked. But but anyway, so you you were hiking up to to Waterton, and um, I think this this story has a spiritual corollary to it as well as the as well as the adventure. So the next
1: day, we're at this point called Fifty Mountain Peak, and I went up there alone, and I'm sitting there, and you look down at Fifty Mountain Peaks from Mm -hmm. this point. I mean, you know, talk about spectacular, amazing. And I had an experience there where I realized that my life's vocation is to be a Zen Master. Ah. And this was just June of 71, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's when I realized that my path was Zen uh, and not some other path.
0: And uh, have you ever had a actual profession uh, other than being a Zen student and teacher, or has it, have you somehow managed to Work out your finances to do this full time ever since then?
1: Well, no, I, I did. I was a school teacher from 66 until 74. Right, okay. Uh, uh, I had to go back, I, I took a year off. I went back and I taught school for a couple of years from sometime, I think, 72 to 74, or maybe 73 to 74. I don't remember. It was two years. And that's the only profession that. I've had since then, I was also a lifeguard for many years before, uh, as I was a teacher and even before I was a teacher, since I was actually 16 I was a lifeguard on the Huntington Beach and Long Beach, but no, that's it. Uh, I've managed to survive uh, teaching Zen really since
0: 1974. Mm. And so when you became a Zen student and you started to get into these really long things, like three months at a time of long meditations and all, What was that like? What was the experience like? uh, Meditating for so long each day—was it uh, was it sort of like arduous and difficult and unpleasant, or did you really sort of, you know, get into it and and have profound experiences?
1: All the above. You know, if I I am a little bit glib, it was sitting long, getting tired. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it was. You know, we we sat very long. We got very tired and I had to go on and do another 7 weeks in Europe of sessions after the 3 months mm. uh, because that's really where I earned my my living was touring Europe and teaching sessions and retreats um, and so but I had very profound experiences during that we all did and probably why I can do what I can do today is because of those very long uh, sittings and retreats that we went very deep into what we call samadhi, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know various openings, various enlightened experiences or kensho experiences. But I got to say that even though I did all that sitting and had the various realizations, that since I. Uh, gave birth, this is what I call it, to the big mind process in 99, which was integrating the Western psychotherapy of, you know, uh, Hal Sidra Stone, Fritz Perls, and of course Carl Jung, integrating the Western psychological with uh, Zen tradition. I've got to say that it's night and day difference, Uh, the clarity, that I've been able to access using the big mind, even uh, as I work with people, and also continue to work on myself with the process, uh, it's night and day different.
0: Cool, well, we'll get into the big mind. I want to really dwell on that uh, just in just a bit. Um, so, so so you're saying that just all that long, traditional Zen practice, you know, which I presume was traditional. Very traditional. The, the, the big mind is, is uh, it's night night and day from that in terms of the the effect it has on you that's what you're saying so. that is that is what i'm
1: saying yes
0: yeah um, is it worth recounting any of the experiences that you had during that period, or are they just sort of like you know sites along the trail that you know are not really worth dwelling on
1: um you know during that period from we're talking now eighty six to ninety four uh Maybe one is worth uh, citing, and that is, uh, in 86, when I had what we would call the more or less Daikensho experience where um, you know, all doubt is, is gone. Uh, I really saw that I gave up being a Zen monk, a Zen teacher, uh, and really was just an ordinary person. But the flip side was uh, also there, that's the shadow that uh, I think I stank from high heavens uh, uh, about Zen in that uh, feeling I was so completely ordinary was so extraordinary uh, uh. it became you know it became a trip in itself <laughs> and uh, you know I mean literally you you kind of glow you know yeah almost like you've got a halo around you or something right and that lasted until 94 but the the real major experience was 94, uh, where, and I can tell you a little bit about that because it's the most interesting. Sure. So so what happened was, uh, I was on my way to Europe to teach and um, I was, um, my girlfriend at that time said to me, you know, um, we're not married and if you want to date and see other women, it's okay. and. I thought, oh, that sounds nice, you know. I get to Europe, uh, and she's back in uh, Salt Lake, and I started to think, why is she giving me this uh, <laughs> <laughs> this gift, right? And I realized, oh, maybe she wants to. And I started yeah. to get a little jealous, and I hadn't mm-hmm. been jealous since way back in 1972, where I think I just disowned jealousy. I mean, I just put it under the basement, you know. <laughs> and. Uh, when I was, I was in a, a monastery in northern France, and uh, one of my students, who's now one of my senseis, gave me a book called The Flight of the Geruda, and it's a Tibetan book, and uh, I, I opened up the book, and I read this passage, and in this passage, it said, if you want to annihilate your ego or kill your ego, this is a practice for you. And I go, oh, that's exactly what I want. And I still have too much ego, and I want to get rid of my ego. You know, I want to kill it. I want to annihilate it. And the practice was to use jealousy as an emotion that has the capacity to destroy the ego. Because if you think about it, and it didn't say this in the book, but I did think about it after, if you think about jealousy, it's the only emotion of all emotions that contains what we call the three poisons, all three. It's got greed, it's got anger, and it's got delusion. Hmm. Most of the others have two, but not three. They're yeah. delusion and anger or delusion and greed, but this one has all three. You're mm-hmm. you you're you're deluded into thinking there's another and you're separate from that other. You're greedy to have, to own, to possess, to you know, mm-hmm. to covet, and you're angry because that beloved one or other is um maybe Seeing somebody else making love to somebody else, whatever you know. Mm-hmm. So I went into that, and the the it was a, a zokchang practice. And the way you did this practice was you you visualized the worst possible scenario that you could visualize, where your lover uh, is making love with other men or mm-hmm. other women, uh, and. You actually make your lover, your partner, into your guru, into your teacher, and you make bows. So what I was doing was, I was leading these retreats, and there were seven weeks of them, and it it was in Kala Rinpoche's uh, monastery, and I was sleeping in his bedroom, in his bed, uh, leading this retreat. And I was handed this book, and I started this practice. And I was uh, bowing to her all night long and meditating all night long. So I would alternate an hour of bowing and an hour of of meditation. Did you ever sleep? No, I didn't sleep for seven weeks. I I didn't lie down for seven weeks. Wow,
0: Uh, how could you physically do that? Not to interrupt the story, but that's kind of interesting. Well, we talked
1: about acid. I was like on, I don't know, five hits of acid all day and night. I hadn't taken anything. Uh, I was a natural uh, endorphins or whatever you would call that chemical uh, equivalent to being like on acid. I was so high, so clear, and in some kind of altered state where I was eating very little, Mm -hmm. uh, only drinking water and juice, and um, not sleeping. (laughs) And it went on for weeks, uh, six or seven weeks. And during that time, there were two consecutive nights where I would lock my door at 9.30 p.m. when I was finished teaching all day, and then I would open it up at 4.30 a.m. when my jishu would come in with a cup of coffee, and then I would teach all day. Mm -hmm. So during the night, that's what I did, and there were two consecutive nights where I just evaporated onto the floor. It was like I became a puddle on the floor. Uh, There was no ego left. There was no substance. It was like, the bones and the structure of my being were gone and I was just completely dysfunctional. I would just be like a, a, a tomato that had just been stepped on, on the floor. I was just totally, you know, uh, with with no self, no ego left.
0: Are and, you saying that if someone had come in the room they would have literally seen you on the floor? Or you still yes, literally,
1: literally on the floor. Oh, okay. I, would, I would be making bows and then uh, two consecutive nights, I just couldn't get up. I was huh. just, I was just there, wow. and just laying there, and you know probably a lot of it was exhaustion, uh, mm-hmm. altered state of consciousness, all the meditation all day long, all night long. Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, the ego was destroyed. And then I had to go and, and teach all day, and I remember thinking, "Thank God for the form," because the form was so much a part of me. I'd been doing it, you know, since seventy two.
0: The form means the routine, uh, structured way of teaching? Is that what that means? Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I come up, get up, I I have full robes on, you know, making my bows, doing the greeting bows to everybody, walking around the Zendo, holding personal interviews, which you call Doksan. Uh, There was a lot of formality to it. And I could just put myself into the form, and I didn't have to think and I didn't have to create anything. I just, you know, I just put myself into that form. and then I locked the door again, and then the next night it happened again, just huh. completely destroyed. So a week later, I'm in Poland and leading the same kind of retreat in Poland, and still doing the same thing all night long, still sitting all night, and something very, very strange happened and uh, really weird. So, in the middle of my sitting, it was probably around 2 a.m., I got a visitation from t- three beings. Uh, and I could make out who they were, they were all deceased, Uh, the 16th Karmapa, Kala Rinpoche, who they all started in his bedroom, and Trimpa Rinpoche, who I was quite close to back in the 70s and the very early 80s.
0: Was he the one who died when he was 47?
1: Yes, 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 Yes. and and he had kind of taken me under his wing and uh, became like an uncle to me. And these three visited me, and it's a little humorous, uh, they said, um, we're going to offer you to ask us three questions, and any questions you want, uh, on dynamic questions, and we'll answer them. Whatever you want to ask, we'll answer them. So, you know, I was thinking, well, what can I ask? And, you know, I'm doubting this whole thing as it's happening, you know, these apparitions, you know, uh, these entities, I've uh, never seen ghosts or anything like that before, you know. But it was, it was, Obviously, them, and of course, we could say it's all my mind, it's all Machio, it's all mine. But, uh, oh, can I have some water? Um, so I said, Well, I'm going to ask three questions I already know the answer to. Because I've done these as koans, right? And so uh, the first question is uh, Where do I come from? And as I was sitting there, I had this, you talked earlier about like a Kundalini, it was kind of like a Kundalini. The energy started in the pit of my being, in the pit of my, my, you know, below my stomach probably the first chakra, and it just raised up like this huge just energy bolting through the top of my skull, out the top of my head. And what came out was... so I come from home, okay? So then I thought, okay, next, next question, where am I now? And again, I, I thought I knew the answer, and I'm sitting there, and the same thing happened, another bolt of energy, and it was home, so I'm home, alright, I got it, I, I come from home, I'm home, alright, where am I going? And then Trump said, you dumb fuck, you'll know when you get there. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that <was> great. <laughs> but that wasn't uh, the... He cheated you out of your third answer. He you did. were entitled to three.
1: <laughs> no, he didn't cheat me. Y'all know when I get there. Yeah, that's
0: true. I guess that's an answer. <laughs> a,
1: it was a very good answer in a yeah. So the next night I'm sitting, and this time I'm sitting opposite direction. That night I was actually facing a mandala that was on the wall, and this time I'm sitting away, looking away from the mandala, and these three aberrations come up, come in the room again mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there and this time Trumpa reached down and he tweaked my testicles mm. my genitals, and he flipped me my energy from yang to yin, huh. and what he did, I mean, it's, it's all bizarre, I'm insane, right? We know that by now we know it, uh, I'm totally insane he changed me from at that point. I don't remember how old I, was, I think fifty. From a fifty-year-old man to a seventeen-year-old girl. Huh. In
0: other words, you totally at that moment felt like a seventeen-year-old girl.
1: For years.
0: Really? For years, you felt like one.
1: Well, it actually. <laughs> okay. Were you
0: like attracted to Donnie Osmond and stuff like that,
1: or? <laughs> no, I still had my attraction for women. Uh huh. I just felt like I was in a woman's body now I wasn't obviously yeah. and I felt the same confusion that, uh, around everything that a 17 year old girl must go through mm-hmm. and uh, I lost all that aggression and aggressiveness the, the young energy all mm-hmm. my energy was very passive mm-hmm. uh, very you know inviting very um, you know bringing things in but there was no bringing the energy out there was no energy going out there was no projecting energy it was like it was an amazing thing and it it only integrated completely one year ago last June
0: Hmm. so a
1: year and a half ago 15 years from the day it happened so you know it was really strong for about a year and then there was few years actually when I met uh, Ken Wilbur which was uh, seven and a half years ago mm-hmm. I also spent some time with David Data and I spent some time with Al Stone's daughter um, and Judith Stone and I was working on how do I integrate this masculine back into my feminine mm-hmm. and, and that was 2003 so you can see 94 to 2003 I was still struggling with this uh, feminine energy that had Overtaken me, hmm. and it became really problematic problematic for me. Uh, and for a while there, uh, I just had to ground myself. So I got back into the gym and I started working out <laughs> adversely. I mean, I was I put on oh, forty pounds of weight, muscles. I got down to a five six body percent body fat. I was, I bulked up, I was lifting 335 pounds on bench presses. I mean, I, I just trying to get my masculinity back, you know, yeah. because I've always been very masculine and all of a sudden yeah. I find myself in a, in a body very feminine and uh, it really put me through something.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I mean, did other people also remark that oh, you had everybody, everybody you totally that. changed?
1: Oh yeah. a yeah. chiropractor who saw me before that trip and after that trip. Uh, I was in Portland, and he said, what happened to you? Yeah. You know, you, you, you've changed completely. You're not in your body, your body is very feminine, you, you move like a woman, you know, what's going on? And I told him, he said, get yourself to the gym, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that's
0: so in I other mean. words, so you didn't actually become sort of, um, you know, attracted to men like no, a 17-year-old no, no. girl, but you're talking more about sort of the feminine, gentle, receptive, you know, soft. <laughs> You know, yeah all that stuff
1: all the qualities you know i became much more empathic empathic more, more, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know much more uh, intuitive and in all of that and uh much less aggressive mm-hmm. and, uh, and um, pushy you know it was it was really like there was no ego it's yeah. interesting
0: because I don't, you know, when when I hear you say this, I don't get the impression that this was something that came from outside into you. It's more like a whole section of yourself, which had been sort of bottled up in some way, was suddenly let out okay. of the bottle,
1: yeah. right?
0: And, yeah. And, and, and that, yeah, and it became kind of predominant because it was it was released so suddenly that it eclipsed the uh, the more masculine side, put that back in the bottle for a while.
1: Yeah, exactly. It took yeah. me fifteen years to integrate that back in. Hmm. You know, talk about the subtle, sudden and gradual, this was the gradual part of the path which it took that long to integrate. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think the whole world would probably be a more uh, peaceful place if everyone were to undergo such a shift, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't recommend <laughs> I don't think we have a
0: choice, but you know, when you, when you consider how much uh, cruelty and, and you know, aggression and you know, greed and and all this stuff that, from ego-driven uh, personalities, that's inflicted upon the world.
1: Um, well, I'll tell you another outcome from this, and that is, once you lose your ego, you lose the desire to lose your ego. Yeah. You see because, what
0: I mean? Because the very desire to lose it is in itself an egotistical sort of drive, right?
1: Yeah, and why would you want to lose it if you didn't have it in the first place? It's because we're so much identified with the ego and we're so into the ego that we want to be less egoistic, you know, or egotistical and more egoless. And that had been driving me until 94. From 71 to 94, I think one of my biggest drives was to be more selfless, more egoless. And then once it happened, I go, this is, you know, I'm dysfunctional. I need to have an ego, I need to integrate an ego, I need to have a healthy ego if I'm going to function in the world and do anything, and that's part of what I call the fall from grace.
0: So you're associating this shift uh, to a a teenage feminine (laughs) nature. To right. be a loss of ego, you're you're, you're defining. Well, it, it happened as a, a week later? It happened because teenage girls have egos, you know. I mean. Oh yeah. But, no, but
1: it, it happened a week later, probably because of the loss of the ego. I was receptive to that shift.
0: Oh, uh, okay.
1: You know, uh, that's probably how it, and why it happened one week later. Uh, so
0: your loss of ego happened a week later. The the shift to the opposite. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, explain clarify.
1: Okay. Okay, so the loss of ego happened when I was in Holland, in the Netherlands, and one week later I found myself in Poland doing another retreat, and that's when these two events happened with with the three entities. With the three
0: spooks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And was was the uh, loss of ego in Holland just as abrupt and dramatic and definitive as as this uh, shift to your feminine nature?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like I said, it was two consecutive nights. Where the ego was just completely I mean it just died, you know, I uh, see. and I yeah. was very dysfunctional. I mean I don't know if you can imagine, it, you know, but yeah that that's what happened and a week later, probably because I was so vulnerable and so mm-hmm. raw that this other experience could happen, and probably because I trusted it and I, and I, I, I love Triple Rifug, I consider him probably the greatest 20th century uh, master you know, of our time. Uh, I really had great admiration for him. Uh, It's probably why I chose Trumpa, you know, or he chose me.
0: Genpo and I had some technical difficulties towards the end of this interview, and uh, also both of our wives were calling us to do other things. So we decided to do a second interview, a follow-up interview, in a few weeks. Um, So if this one seemed to end somewhat abruptly, that's why, and there will be another one in early February. If you'd like to be notified of that and of all the interviews that I do, um, you can email me, rick at batgap.com, and I'll put you on an email notification list. So look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.